Welcome to Modern Digital Applications, a podcast for corporate decision makers and executives looking to create or extend their digital business with the help of modern applications, processes, and software strategy. Now welcome your host, a recognized industry thought leader in cloud computing and published author, bringing over 30 years of experience, Lee Acheson. My guest today is Kevin Gosler. Kevin is the Senior Vice President for Technology Strategy at Originate. Originate is a digital agency that helps organizations with digital transformation best practices. Kevin has a PhD in business computer science and is an avid software developer. He currently is the maintainer for Git Town, which is an open source project that provides a a high-level CLI for Git. Previously, Kevin worked as a software developer at Google, which is where he was exposed to monorepos. Kevin is a Git expert and process advocate, and he's here to discuss with me the pros and cons of monorepos versus polyrepos. Kevin, welcome to Modern Digital Applications. Glad to be here, Lee. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. This is going to be a fun talk. I've, I've never had a, a in, our, in our pre-meetings for this, we've had some great conversations about this topic. I think it's going to be a great, great episode. Hopefully it will be. Yeah, we got into it. We got into a debate about monorepos on a Slack channel and decided to do a podcast episode. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. It's so first to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, why don't you uh, give me a summary in your own words? What is a monorepo and what is a polyrepo? Sure. So a monorepo is technically a code repository, like a Git repository that contains more than one logical code base. So for example, if you have a mobile application, it would be one code base. And that mobile application talks to an API on the server, that is another code base. And a monorepo would contain both in one repository. But really what most people think about when they hear monorepo is that we take that idea all the way to the extreme and the entire code of a company or an organization is all in one repository. Many applications, many mobile applications, maybe APIs, many microservices, all in one repository. And then by analogy, a polyrepo then is? A polyrepo, also called multi-repo, is the opposite of a monorepo. It is a best practice where each code base is located in its own repository. Its own Git repository it, in, yeah. in particular. In, in this it case. could be Git, it could be Mercurial, it could be Perforce. Valid point. Whatever, whatever your weapon of choice is there. I think one of the keys here is we are talking about best practices here. So to everyone listening, there there is no right answer here. There are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches. And there are some strong advocates on both end of the field. And you'll, you'll find out from this episode the uh, which one of us is a strong advocate of which one. Uh, but uh, uh, let's get started in this. And let's start out by talking about, you know, why would you use one versus the other? What are the advantages of a monorepo and what are the advantages of a polyrepo? One immediate advantage of a monorepository is that it impersonates the idea of inner source in the most direct way. Inner source is the idea of applying open source best practices for the development of proprietary software inside commercial organizations. And that means we don't want to share the code with the rest of the world, but we want to share the code as much as we can inside the organization and have better reuse and better collaboration of teams. And obviously the most obvious answer to that is to put all the code in one repository. That would be a monorepository. So what what are some of the disadvantages you hear from people about that approach? One challenge with that is uh, visibility. If, if there are parts of the code base that are confidential, some 
repository technologies like Git, for example, cannot limit the visibility of parts of the repository. And so that makes it easier for disgruntled employees to steal code when they leave the organization. I mean, they can take the entire code with them. I would say that is more a problem with inner source in general, not really against monorepos. You can, even in a monorepository setup, the business secrets, the really, the crown jewels of your code would always be outside the monorepository and more protected. For example, in Google's example, the search algorithm itself is not part of their monorepository, but the search engine itself is. An even larger advantage is the ability to do large-scale code maintenance. As a successful organization that exists over many decades, the, the quality of the code degrades. There's technical debt, there's technical drift, code bases have different owners, and over time, craft accumulates. And that craft, like in a workshop where I work on material and things fall to the floor, I have to clean up regularly to keep the code base clean. And in my experience, that can be between 20 and 40% of the total effort that is done is to keep the code clean. And a mono repository allows to do atomic refactorings. That is an advantage over multi repositories. I can do the traditional non-atomic refactorings where I do it in many small steps. But in addition to that, I can do an, a large scale cleanup all at once. That allows me to, first of all, do the cleanup in a way that I avoid breaking changes. I can avoid breaking other teams and I see the entire impact of the change all at once. And I can undo the change in an atomic way if it turns out that I broke something. You know, we should probably also state here too that we both have experiences in different companies that use different strategies here. Uh, you have uh, significant experience with Google and they're really the ones that came, I'm not sure if they came up with, but they certainly are a strong advocate of the monorepo strategy. And, and for the most part, correct me if I'm wrong here, but for the most part, all of Google's code is in a single repository and is available in, in, in this model that you're talking about, where everything, no matter what the services of the hundreds and thousands of services that, that Google has available, all of the code for all of them is in a single repository that is managed as a single repository. Is that a, a true statement? That is correct. Google has the largest code repository in the world that is known. It's 86 terabytes of code or test data and other things, 1 billion files, 2 billion lines of code, 9 million source code files. Um, Google turns over 45,000 commits every day and changes 15 million lines of code. That is the amount of the entire Linux code base every week. It's an amazing amount of change. But it, but also that amount of change isn't unprecedented. I, I don't know the numbers offhand for Amazon, but they're very similar sorts of numbers as far as the number of lines of code changed and the, the amount of, uh, of, of commits and deploys that go on every, every single day. But a company like Amazon uh, is taking a completely different strategy. They take the poly repo strategy where every team, every service essentially essentially has their own repository. There is some shared code and, 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 uh, and uh, shared libraries that are in shared repositories. But for the most part, every team, every service owner has a repository for their service. And our, each service is in a separate repository that's managed independently. And that's really the fundamental difference we're talking about here. The model repo 
structure is everything in one repository available to everybody company-wide for an entire application or an entire company. And while the polyrepo strategy is a repo that's tied to a specific service or a specific application or a specific use case that is controlled and managed by typically a single team or a couple of teams that is for that specific purpose and the next service over that it connects to has a different code base that's used for a different purpose and is isolated at a code base standpoint from your code base. And so that's really the, the, the fundamental difference between these strategies is do you put all of the code for everything that interacts with each other into one code base or do you separate it so that individual services have their own code base and is tracked independently? And that's really the heart of the debate here is which strategy, is that, is that a good way to summarize it? Yeah, I would agree. And I would also add that both companies do it very successfully. They're both technology leaders in, in their respective fields and it, whatever they're doing is obviously working very well for them. And they've been, they also have been at it for a long time. Right, right. And there's lots of companies that are smaller than either of those companies too that also successfully do both of the approaches as well. It's, it's not just the large companies that do this. It's, Every company has a strategy around this, whether it's mono or poly, every company ends up with their own decision process as far as how do they want to manage your code base. Yes, like other popular users of monorepos are Facebook. They have a 56 gigabyte monorepository. Twitter does it. Microsoft swears by it. They have a separate monorepository for the Windows code base and the Office code base. Uber, Airbnb, DigitalOcean, Foursquare, Mozilla. On the multi-repository side, we have Amazon, IBM, Apple, Intel, and Oracle. So there's there's leading tech companies on both sides that do it different differently. Yes. So what? Why would? So if you're a company and you've you've you're, you're either a, let's say either a startup company that's just building your code base, or more likely you're an established company that's trying to get a handle on your code strategy and your your application your your development processes and your development systems. You're growing enough and you need to get a handle on this all. And you need to make a decision about which strategy strategy do we use? Which do you recommend? So I typically recommend starting with a monorepository. And there are a number of reasons for that. Initially, the setup of your code basis is not really clear. Like the product is often developing, especially for startups, before traction. You want to try a number of ideas. You want to make larger changes quickly. You don't have a lot of traffic. You don't have a lot of code. So it fits very well into a monorepository. And then as the company grows and you start outgrowing a naive, simple implementation of a monorepository and the tests are starting to get really long and the, the operations are getting long, we, you can then decide if you want to invest into splitting up into a number of, at this point, very well apparent code bases. The themes of your code are pretty clear at this point, and it's really easy to split up into multiple repositories, or you could invest into scaling your monorepo. Yeah, and, and that's a, you know, I, I actually agree with you from a small, from the startup company standpoint, that if you're just starting out and you don't really know what your code base is going to turn into yet, there are advantages of having just a single repository and and uh, and then deciding how to split it up later, and and there's, there's nothing wrong with that approach, especially if you only have a single development team, or single developer in a very small company, <laughs> or a small number of teams. It's, it's easy to manage that way. 
the, the issue I have with monorepos is when you get into a larger organization with larger number of teams. And um, in, from my standpoint, the, the issue we run into is uh, I'm a very much a, f um, a believer in the two pizza team model coming from Amazon. Obviously, that's uh, very prevalent there, where a single development team owns a service and they own all aspects of that service. Um, everything about the service from, you know, writing the code, testing the code, um, uh, the data that the code needs that's owned by the service is owned by them. Um, you know, the APIs that are available are, are designed and dictated by them. And the SLAs for the service, the internal SLAs are owned by them. And they're responsible 100% for everything that happens to that service. So if I have... If I'm service A and I have a dependency on service B and I need service B to do something for me, I need to work with that team to have that work done. I have expectations on how that team performs. I base my performance on the expectations, which are the SLAs of that other team, and I expect them to perform. If they don't, that's a problem on their end. If they are performing, but then I fail for some reason, that's a problem on my end. Very clear boundaries, very clear ownership. And actually, I've uh, uh, um, got a term that I used in my book that talks about that called STOSA, you know, single team oriented service architecture. And um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, too. But it's a whole philosophy of how you manage services around the structure of ownership of the services. And what's important about this is, is, is all, the operation of the service is also owned by the same team. The deployment, the operation, the the um, the monitoring, the performance, the the being notified when a problem occurs, making sure that you're aware of all of the, all that is handled by that team, and that model works great as long as everything about that service is owned and operated by that team. No overlap. There is no overlap in that model. There is no service that has more than one owner. There is no code base that has more than one owner, with the exception that you do have shared code bases, but those code bases, shared code bases still have owners, still have SLAs and responsibilities with them as well too. So even if a code base is used by multiple services, that code base itself is itself a service, if you will, that has an owner and, and sets of SLAs and responsibilities for it. The point of all this is, is that model breaks if anyone besides your team goes in and touches your code. And so if, if I have a change I need to make to another team services, it's my responsibility to work with that team to make those changes necessary. It is not my responsibility to go in and make those changes for them. Even if they're easy, that's not my job, that's their job, because anything that changes their code affects their performance and they own their own performance. So that's kind of, that's the problem I have with the, uh, Model repos. The, all the advantages I hear about model repos are are all about these large scale refactorings and the ability to make changes that span multiple re, multiple projects and all that sort of stuff. And it's like those things shouldn't be easy to do. Those things should be hard to do, and should be managed and should have organizational boundaries around to make sure they're done correctly, because it's so easy to mess up someone else's code or code you're not familiar with and not have the boundaries in place that make a, a scalable organization 
fly, essentially. So what's your what's your response to those comments? Great points, Lee. I would say that first of all, we need to make clear that a monorepository doesn't mean a monolithic code architecture. I, I agree with you. I, we're talking two different things. Yeah. We're talking. So it's not just one big blob of code that that is a hairy ball of code, as we say. In a the right way, the best way to run a large engineering organization is to have these independent teams, as you say, right? Micro teams or, or two pizza teams. Each team, like you say, should be completely vertically integrated and own their entire service from, from top to bottom. They should even have their own product managers and find their own clients, can even have their own PL if you want to go that far. All of that is possible in a mono repository the same way it is in a multi-repo. The only difference is that in a multi-repo setup, you would have a dedicated code repository for each team. And in a mono repository, you would have a each team would have its own folder instead of its own repository. So I, I disagree that they're the same because in the the poly repo structure, then there is a boundary that can actually prevent, but certainly discourages someone in service team A from changing code in service team B rather than working with service team B to have them make the changes. Yeah, you would have the same in a mono repository. Otherwise, it would be chaotic. So GitHub has... Well, then now, I, I, I'll, I'll question that because I've even heard the one of the big advantages of mono repos is the ability to do massive rescalings across multiple teams. That's inconsistent with the idea of only the team that owns the code making the changes. So maybe it helps if we walk through an example. GitHub has this concept of code owners, which is a, a file that describes who is the owner for each for which folder in a repository. So I could be the owner of the backend folder and you, Lee, could be the owner of the frontend folder. And so if, if I want to make a large-scale refactor where, let's say, I want to rename an API, it, over time, it has, the name is no longer reflects what the API does because the product has evolved and the returns, API returns different data. And now I want to clean this technical drift up. The way I would do it in a mono repository is I would first submit this change to a some sort of review committee that looks at this change and decides if the change is worth it. Is the benefit larger than the cost? And if we say, yes, let's do it, then I would go into the mono repository. I would ideally, if it's done well, right click on the name of the API, choose the rename refactor, my IDE renames that function or whatever it is across the code base automatically with great tooling that I have built or that I have available in, in my code base, in your code base, but it's all happening in a branch. Then I submit this branch via a pull request to the to for review. The CI server runs my tests. It wants it, it knows it sees that your code base is affected, so it runs your tests as well. And also because you are registered as the code owner for your code base, you are automatically marked as a reviewer. So you have to approve that change as well as the code reviewer on my side. And so we both now can talk about this change. You can give feedback. If we agree, we would merge this change in, and then it updates both our code bases at the same time. 
the idea is you do a change across multiple services simultaneously at once as one event with one set of commits across multiple services. And the great advantage is that now I have updated both ends and I've prevented a breaking change because the next time your service deploys, it would use the updated API that I have deployed at the same time. You haven't guaranteed a breaking uh, that you don't have a breaking change because uh, if if the if the you have two states of the code, the original state of the code and the committed change of the code after the massive change, and both of those work on both of our services. But what hasn't been tested is if I deploy mine before you deploy yours. So in order for that code to work is both deploys have to occur simultaneously. My service and your service would have to deploy simultaneously. Otherwise, there's use cases that aren't tested in that. And, and that's one of the problems is you, you're you end up tying artificially the deploys of many, many, many services into single events because you have changes that are highly dependent on each other that are across those boundaries. In the polyrepo strategy, all those are independent things. So if I, as service A, need to change to service B, I need to you know, request that change from them. They need to put that change in in a backward compatible way. They need to deploy that change. And once that change is deployed, then I can depend on that change and make my changes and deploy that independently. But our deploys now are asynchronous and independent. They can occur whenever they need to. They're not tied to each other. What we're tied to is this common API that is versioned, this common yeah, uh, API that's versioned and may grow and change over time, but it's versioned. Um, and we're tied to that, but we're not tied to changes in the code base itself. Yes, that is correct. So this is a good example for a larger change where we would need additional infrastructure. Like either we have the versioning set up in a way that the older versions of your service talk to the older versions of my API and the newer versions of your service talk to the newer versions of my API and we can guarantee it in production somehow, then we can avoid this breaking change. That's only possible if it's internally and fully under our control. The moment there are different deployments, that's often not the case. And then we need to do a more non-atomic refactor where we have to deal with different versions. You're right. That is, that is also possible in a monorepository. I can still have different versions of my code base and have different versions of deployments uh, running in production. And But the advantages of the monorepo start disappearing when you start doing that because you're no longer able to do these. You know, the, to me, the, the, the ultimate advantage of the monorepo is I can make a change that impacts multiple services, presumably a large number of services, as one atomic thing. But I can't if I don't want to tie my deployments together. So if I say, well, that's not the case, I won't be doing that, then that removes one of the major advantages of, of monorepos. And then why not have polyrepos where you have lots of other advantages like scalable code size and all those sorts of things? Yes, so the the atomic refactor I described probably applies more to small, simple refactors like updating a shared library, for example, left padding a string where I want to have a bug fix. And I can roll it out across the, the board or I can improve an API there where it doesn't affect public APIs. Uh, those are cheaper. If I If it's a larger change, then it requires the same 
set up as a, in a multi-repo. So a monorepo allows me to do the same thing as a multi-repo as you just laid out. In addition to that, I can do, if it's possible, more economical refactors because such refactors are only worth it if we do them completely, if everybody updates. And so if everybody has to update and we can automate it, and it is possible to verify through automated testing that everything still works afterwards and the code owners are okay with it, why not do it in a much more efficient way as a one, a single atomic change? Because it breaks the, the ownership model, which is so imperative to, um, you know, the, the single team ownership model where you own the code, you know, own all aspects of it. If you own most of it, then um, you don't own anything. And that's really what it, what it, what it boils down to. And so in, in my mind, um, those changes that like, for instance, the library change, you made an interesting comment. You said, yeah, when you're talking about public APIs, maybe not, but, but my, my, I guess my real point is in the Stosa model, in the model that, you know, like what Amazon uses and what many other companies use this model of ownership, there is no differentiation in how you handle a public API versus a private API. Everything is a public API. Now it's not all public to outside of the company, but if service team A with service A publishes an API that's used by service team B and service B, they treat that API as if it's a public API because it is, it's a public API to another team. And all of the aspects you go into a public API, all the versioning, all the requirements that are not changed. And if it does change, that's, you know, that's a metric against you if you change your API and don't tell people about it. That's, that's, that means you're not doing your job as an owner of a service. Um, and, and all of those aspects um, all require that you have complete ownership of the service and, and control over the service, including when the deploys occur, when the rollbacks occur, when, when you, uh, when do you decide to make this version active versus that version active? All of those things happen, are critical parts of um, the ownership model that requires you to not allow certain types of activities to occur in your code base without your approval, because otherwise you don't own the code and you're not responsible for the code if you don't manage. Yes, one challenge with monorepo is certainly is are these silent updates where something that I depend on could change at any time. And that's where proper management of a monorepo comes into play. So having a review committee that reaches out, if, if I want to make a change that affects you, the review committee should reach out to you, like we're planning on making this change, are you okay? And then you can say, you know what, do it in two weeks, I'm in the middle of a critical deploy, I can't ingest this change right now or yes it's fine and also that you are you are the person who reviews and approves the changes to your folder i would say the stoza model is great and i agree with it and but it doesn't mean you have you have to make all the changes you have to review and approve them but you don't have to make them all like why can't somebody else make a large-scale change across the code base and then you just approve your part so the way those sorts of changes occur within Amazon is they're driven not by an engineer in a in a code review setting. They're driven by 
a program manager that's responsible for making a change. If you have a change that's required across the organization, we need to upgrade to version XYZ of the standard library across the organization. Um, then there's a person that's assigned to that project to make sure that everyone does that update and works with all the individual teams saying, you need to schedule this work. When are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? And work with them about what has to happen to make it make it actually happen, make sure it gets done. They, the role that does that within Amazon, for instance, the one I'm more familiar with is called the technical program manager or TPM. They're the ones that are responsible for making sure those changes that cross organizations, across development teams that are, are required to have everyone's support happen, but they're all handled as, as um, you know, it's the, the job of the TPM is to herd a bunch of cats, not to take all the cats and attach them at the hips and bring them all over it as one entity. So it's, you don't want to, you, you want to give the cats the right to move around as they want to and direct them in the right direction. That's what the TPM does. That's the, the polyrepo strategy versus not allow them, you know, to move how they want to pick them up and move them all at once. That's the, the monorepo strategy. And that takes away the independence of the development teams that is so critical in the, uh, the Stosa ownership model. I'm not sure I agree because you in a monorepo, you could do both. I could say, look, each team can run their own version of Java. I don't care. Everybody just has their own folder. I just can do larger. I can do, I can grab the entire code base if I want to, and I can do a search and replace across the entire code base or compile everything once. But but you don't have to do that, right? You can. So you're right. You can put. You can create a model repo where every team has their own folder, every service has their own folder, and you have rules in place that says thou shalt not touch another team's folders, and you can do that. But then you're essentially doing poly repos in a single repo which has all the advantages of polyrepo, none of the advantages of a monorepo, but it also has the disadvantages of a monorepo from a scaling and size standpoint, because monorepos are much, 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 much larger and harder to scale than, which we will get into later on in, our, yeah. in the podcast, I'm sure. But it's, uh, you know, you, you end up getting, you know, all the things I hear here are, you know, yes, you can emulate polyrepos and monorepos and get by getting rid of all the advantages of monorepos, um, but then why do it? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I don't see it as black and white. I, I think, right. I think that I made it black and white, and it's not really black and white. There's middle ground here. Yes, and a monorepo allows me to have this in the as give teams as much independence as is healthy for my organization, but then on top of that, add a level of consistency and centralization and standardization that a monorepo makes much easier. Um, so it's, it's uh, yeah, you're, world. You're, that's a good point. Um, so that is one of the things that monorepos does make better is more consistent um, standards utilized. Um, and, and, and I agree with that. And that's the model of the, the complete ownership. The more ownership a team has, the more freedom they have to do the things that they think make sense that may or may not be consistent with what the team next to them are doing. So you're right. It's easier. There are certain things that are easier in model repos and certain things that are easier in poly repos. One of the things that's easier in model repo is a consistent um, philosophy, a consistent set of standards implemented all at once atomically. 
that's true, but the cost of that is uh, reduced independence of the development teams and reduced independence in the ownership model and the reduced ability for a team to own their own fate and, and to own their own code, which is in the models I use critical for maintaining availability and maintaining scalability and, and things like that. So that's kind of where it comes from. It's there's, this is why they're both best practices, right? Yeah. There's, there's advantages to each way. It's just uh, different people have different views and different companies have different views, which is better for their organization. This is the end of part one of my interview with Kevin Gosler. Stay tuned next time for part two of my interview. Thank you for listening to Modern Digital Applications with Lee Acheson. Lee helps executives keep up with industry trends and best practices in cloud computing, application scaling, DevOps, and applications modernization in order to stay in front of disruptive influencers. Subscribe to this podcast to ensure you get each new episode as it's available. Visit mdacast.com for all the resources and publications from Lee and his team. Thank you for tuning in to today's show.